Welcome to the True Neighbor Podcast. My name is Tom Breyer. My guest today is Pastor Larry T. Waltower of the Shiloh Baptist Church in the city of York. Pastor Waltower is one of the most impressive men I've ever met. He is a man of history and a man of his time. He is deeply committed to his faith and to the well-being of others. And for many, he is a beacon of hope, providing wisdom, guidance, and optimism in a world too often filled with folly, aimlessness, and despair. Pastor Waltower and I begin our discussion at the philosophical level, diving fully into the American paradox regarding religion. Why is it that in this country we demand the separation of church and state, yet welcome, and in many ways require, the intersection of religion with politics? We also delve into the legacy of Dr. King and the role that faith played in the civil rights movement. We reflect on questions like, what role should ministers play in the world of politics? What's the relationship between faith and activism? And why is it that during a time of intense violence, Dr. King practiced nonviolence? We then turn to the questions of the day, and particularly those surrounding religious worship in an era of social distancing. We discuss two contradictions. On one hand, it was reported that nearly three dozen churchgoers in Arkansas contracted the coronavirus after attending the same religious service. On the other hand, the president of Brazil decided on Friday that churches qualify as essential services and thus are exempted from Brazil's countrywide lockdown order. This raises the question, what should religious leaders do? Should they permit folks to worship as they please? Or should they close their church doors for the indefinite future? Pastor Waltower's insights on these critically important questions should be required listening. So without further ado, I give you our next true neighbor, Pastor Waltower. All right, I'm here with Pastor Larry T. Waltower. Pastor Waltower, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. This question of religion in a pandemic is a really interesting one. We have a number of things that I'd like to talk to you about, but before we dive in, I know that you're relatively new to the York area. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Maybe touch on what led you to pursue a life of re religious service and then how you found your way to York? Uh, sure. Uh, again, thank you so much for having me. And, and uh, to those who are listening, I say uh, good afternoon from York, Pennsylvania. Uh, I am here uh, in York, pr pretty new, about five years. I, my wife and I moved here from uh, Miami, uh, Fort Lauderdale area. I was pastoring another church in the uh, South Florida area before assuming the um, senior pastorship here at the Shallow Baptist Church in York. Uh, I was born in San Diego, California. Um, I'm the son of uh, Larry T. Walthour Sr., who is a veteran, and uh, Or Walthour, um, who um, my mom and my dad. Uh, I got called to preach 
about uh, 15. I was about 15 years young when I got called to preach. Um, I felt early in life that I had a, a unique call. And um, after giving my life to Christ at an early age and growing up in a religious family, I recognized that God had his hand on me. And so I received my calling to the ministry at about 15. I uh, started pastoring at age 27. And I've been here at the Shallow Baptist Church uh, for about five years. And I pastored another church in South Florida, the St. Andrew, Andrew Missionary Baptist Church in Miami uh, for 20 years before moving to York. I've been to Shiloh a number of times now since we've gotten to know each other over the past year. Uh, I'm always struck by the deep sense of community with the folks in, in your parish. Your activism, I think, plays a large role in that. It seems like you made that a priority from the day you arrived in York. What was your initial assessment like of York City? Did you take time to kind of determine what exactly needed to be done in the city? What role your faith and Shiloh Baptist could play in that? And tell us just a little bit about not only your process of uh, analyzing what needed to be done in York, but the initiatives that you've launched over the past few years as well. Um, that's a good question. When I moved here, I, I did take some time to uh, assess uh, York. I'm a student of uh, the civil rights uh, movement. Uh, mm. Dr. King was assassinated in April of uh, 68, um, and John F., uh, Robert uh, F. Kennedy was assassinated in June that's of right. 68, and I was born in May of 68. Mm. So I'm, I'm right between Dr. King and Robert Kennedy. And so I'm a student of nonviolence. I'm a student of the civil rights movement. And being a, a Baptist preacher, uh, social activism and social justice has always been a part of the Baptist faith. As a matter of fact, Dr. King himself was a Baptist preacher. So I've always had a sense of community engagement, community calling for the least, the lost, the left out, and the left behind. Um, so coming here to York, it, it, it just was in my nature to gravitate to, uh, to uh, equity and equality here in the city. So I did sit back and analyze uh, the, and survey the, uh, the landscape. And what I, fig what I found out is that here in York, there's a deep-rooted uh, sense of hurt and an unreconciled um, community uh, uprest, unrest, I'm sorry, from the 1968 riots here in uh, York. Uh, that became a, a, a very powerful theme here in this city. And so since I realized that that was a sore spot, that's where I began to try to make um, an impact. And from there, we, uh, Shiloh got involved, of course. Uh, we were part of the, the uh, Confronting Racism Coalition here in York. We are part of the uh, Shiloh launched Hope Fest uh, last year, which is a uh, week-long celebration to inspire hope activism and community engagement. Uh, we've partnered with uh, people of public service like yourself, um, and we just tried to have different forums um, where our public officials could come and just touch base and touch the community and touch the citizens. And uh, through those efforts, the last five years, Shiloh has become a, um, a, a leading church in that effort. But almost, I must also say that uh, Shiloh is a legacy church. So many of the pastors that I, um, uh, I followed were very involved with social activism and social justice. I think it's a fascinating point that you make, and you and I have had long conversations about history. It's the one thing I love talking to you about. 
And if we look back to 1968, I think in many ways that's the year that our country changed. Yes. As you mentioned the assassinations of Dr. King and Bobby Kennedy. Nixon was nominated in July on the back of the Southern strategy. Exactly. And, uh, many, um, everything changed, I think, at that point. Even Jimmy Carter said it in 1979 when he said in his famous Malaise speech that we were sure we were the nation of the ballot and not the bullet until the assassinations of the Kennedys and Dr. King. Um, you are, so you come in with this historical mindset, this study or studious understanding of Dr. King's philosophy of nonviolence. I want to touch on that more deeply, but what I find just as interesting is the role of a minister in the public sphere. And so there's the famous uh, dichotomy between Martin Luther King Sr., who was a Republican, and Dr. King, who was a Democrat. There was a generational change there. Obviously, uh, Lincoln was a Republican. He signed the Emancipation Proclamation. And so the several generations were raised, at least in the African-American faith, as Republicans. Uh, there was a shift, but their political activism didn't change. At what point in your um, religious studies did politics or public service become ingrained with your uh, religious sermons? And in what way do you view the role of politics in your church? I don't think you can preach the gospel of the kingdom and not be engaged in politics because we're called to speak truth to those in power and to be a moral conscience to those in power. Uh, Dr. King talked about shocking the moral conscience of this, of this country. And he was able to do that um, by, by not only his preaching, but also the use of media. He, he, he was strategic in terms of showing the country what was taking place in the South because to hear about it on the radio or to read about it in the paper was not, same, was not the same as seeing it. And so when the nation saw Bloody Sunday, it shocked the moral conscience of this country and it shifted, it brought a shift in the struggle where you had now a coalition of blacks, whites, uh, women, um, um, Jews, Gentiles, all over the country came to the South to dismantle uh, segregation. And Dr. King from his, uh, the letter to the Birmingham jail talked about the moderate uh, uh, white brothers and sisters and, and, and the, the, the gradual approach. And More so, devoted to, to order than to justice, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think um, he understood the dynamic of, of change and that it has to be a unified front that he said if, if, if either we're going to live together as brothers and sisters or we're going to die or perish as fools. And so he had a unique ability to be able to look at a at a passage in scripture and parallel it to the to the events of that time. And I think from that context, that's where my social activism began. So when I look at the story of, of Pharaoh and Moses, um, I don't just see a biblical narrative. I, I see uh, injustice in that text and how Moses is a, is a modern day um, speaker to those in power to let God's people go, to do right, to love justice, perceive mercy, and to walk humbly before uh, our God. And so from that context of being able to look at different um, textual stories and textual analysis and scriptures and being able to relate it to the present day social injustices or events of our time, 
it, it, it calls me to preach a gospel of social activism. Why is it, do you think, and this is something I planned on asking you in a little bit, but since we're on the topic, I think it's worth diving into now. Obviously, in this country, we have a separation of church and state, but not necessarily a separation of religion and politics. And if we look at the past 100 years, there's been a really concerted effort to link piety, piety to patriotism, the origins of one nation under God and uh, the religious movement in this country dates back to the 1950s. And I think you can draw a straight line from the Eisenhower administration to modern day where Republicans are generally viewed as being evangelical, um, more conservative in their Christianity, whereas African-Americans and in the Baptist church, at least in our area, tend to be Democrats. And I think Democrats in many ways have lost the religious argument that you can be faithful and liberal. Um, why is that, do you think? Have you given any uh, mind share to the idea that Democrats and Republicans tend to have a much different assessment of the role of religion and politics and the specific uh, denomination that applies to your political ideology? Uh, that's, a, that's a very powerful and probing question. I think for the African-American church, um, and this is not, this is not a stereotypical um, uh, statement or uh, one of an umbrella, I'm not saying all, but for the most part, when you look at the African-American church today, uh, from, from the masses, you don't see the social activism that you saw during the civil rights movement. You saw more churches publicly engaged, politically engaged, socially engaged, um, and, and it was an extension of the movement. And so when Dr. King called for action, now all pastors didn't support Dr. King, um, but you had such a number that did that, that the civil rights movement became a spiritual movement. It wasn't just political and it wasn't just social. It was a spiritual element. And I dare to say that God was moving through that, through that, through that time, through the church, through the voices of Dr. King, Ralph Abernathy, Shuttlesworth. You had people like that that were not only vocal, but they were vital and they were visible. And many of the civil rights movement, the leaders were pastors. They were religious leaders who led congregations. And so you saw more activism in the uh, church back then as opposed to now. When it goes to the, uh, to the, the Democrat-Republican platform, I think what we have done in terms of the political aspect nationally, I don't think we have taken a, uh, a view of importance for the voice of, of, of uh, pastors, preachers, um, religious leaders like the Republican Party has. In the Republican Party, the evangelical movement has a, has a, has a place at the table. Um, and whether you agree with their ideology or not, uh, as, it, as it pertains to a biblical interpretation of a biblical text to these narratives of today, they are part of the conversation. In the, so in the Democratic Party, you don't see that as much. You may have some, but you don't have 
um, a, a, a platform for the religious uh, leaders in the Democratic Party. And I think that's hurting us. Uh, I, think, I think a powerful example of that is the, uh, is the, uh, the recent Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, in the history of this country, the Black Lives Matter movement was the first movement of uh, people of color where your preachers and pastors were not out front, nor were they involved. Mm. You, you, you didn't see pastors on the front line and the reason why is because many of those who began that movement saw the church and still see the church as irrelevant. And I think that's because we've lost that ability to speak uh, from God's word and make it relevant to the, to, the, to, the, to the times that we live in and not just old stories for old time. But we take old, old stories and make them relevant to the times that we live in so that the Word of God and the Church of God can remain relevant. I think it's true across society as a whole as well. If you look at my generation, young people in general, we're far less religious than our parents. We tend to congregate more in social gatherings than we do in civic or religious ones. There's, a, I think, uh, a deficiency in purpose for people today. And whether that's through faith or through public service in democracy, there does seem to be um, a real lack of a spiritual type of movement, regardless of the form that that takes. And I think it actually provides an interesting segue to the pandemic that we're living in right now, because we see a real dichotomy here. Um, I read recently that in Arkansas, three dozen people contracted the COVID-19 virus following one religious service. And so social distancing is playing out at the most acute level. This is the same in prisons as well, where people are, are gathering in, in spaces where they sit next to each other, they shake hands, it's very interactive. Um, but then again, in Brazil yesterday, the president announced that churches classify as essential services and therefore are exempted from coronavirus-related lockdowns. What are your thoughts on social distancing in the religious context, and is there a way to be faithful and practice your religion without being in the church to do so. How have you responded to your parishioners to, in this time to allow them to you know, practice their faith without getting sick? That's a powerful question and thank you for it. Um, there's a, there's a, and I, I don't wanna sound overly religious, but I wanna use this platform to, to explain what I mean when I say taking the, the, the word of God and make it relevant to our time so people can understand. There's a scripture in the Bible that says that my people perish for a lack of knowledge. So when I, when I, when I began to listen to the professionals, the, um, the experts um, that were informing the country about this pandemic, and, and first of all, I, I, don't, I don't refer to it as a pandemic. I look at it as a pestilence. And what do you mean by that? A pestilence, what, what we're calling a pandemic here in our day, the Bible refers to it as a pestilence. And whenever you saw pestilences in scripture, it was, it was the reaction of something else. Usually it was judgment. Uh, matter of fact, most times, if not all times, it was God's judgment for sin, for things that were, that were going on that violated not only his divine law, but his moral law. 
um, his human law um, and the laws of nature. So, so when you when you read scripture from from uh, the ten plagues of Egypt and throughout the life of Israel and and many of the occurrences of the the, the biblical narrative, you see what we're seeing today. But they are called a pestilence. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm going to try to in a in a brief moment uh, as, as as brief as I can to connect the dots. So when I when I saw so so my understanding of this is it's a pestilence, not a pandemic. Uh, so looking at it from a from a from a biblical narrative, uh, the first thing that I'm doing I'm assessing what I'm seeing, and I'm trying to find a biblical context. And so, how do we deal with a pestilence in Scripture? When I saw them give the formula for what they were asking us to do, they said, "Listen, if you see these particular um, first of all, this is an asymptomatic um, disease. So you could have it without knowing it. Right. But we don't, we don't want you to go to the hospitals until you start seeing certain symptoms. So if you see these symptoms, we want you to go and seek uh, medical attention, get an examination, get a test, and then self-quarantine yourself for 14 days. And then uh, after, after you self-quarantine, we're going to retest you to see whether or not you have this virus. And then we're gonna work to either get you back into the general population or if you have this virus, we have to quarantine you until you recover. That was the basic summary. Fast forward to scripture. I went, so when I began to listen to this, it sounded a lot like leprosy in the Bible. Now, leprosy came during a time when Israel had just become a nation and they didn't have medical science. They didn't have the advancements of technology to be able to deal with this, this contagious and morbid disease. It was a very debilitating disease and it was fatal, it, it could kill you. But they didn't have, they didn't know how to deal with it. So in the book of Leviticus 13, God gave them the solution. He said, if you see these particular symptoms, take them to the priest and let the priest examine them and put them on quarantine for seven days. Re-examine them, if you see these symptoms, keep them in quarantine another seven days, that's 14 days. After those days, examine them and determine whether or not if they're leprous. If they're leprous, they have to go into an outside area of, of quarantine because if they're among the general population, it's going to spread. If they're not leprous, uh, treat them and get them back into the general population. Now that came from the book of uh, Leviticus chapter 13, almost 4,000 years ago. And when you listen to what I just said about how God said deal with leprosy, it's the exact same remedy that we're seeing today. That's an amazing parallel. Right. So... Go ahead. And I was going to say where I, where I struggle is at what point do you use religion to fuel science or in what way should religiosity and faith be uh, infused with the experts from the healthcare or the expertise from healthcare professionals? Because I saw just recently that according to Pew Research, only a third of white evangelical Protestants, about 32%, see the coronavirus as a major threat to the health of the U.S. population. And, and just as of two days ago, the United States leads the world in the number of total cases. And so when, you're, when you frame this issue, do you frame it first through the lens of faith and then through the lens of science or vice versa? Or is it more uh, intermingled in terms of how you portray this to um, those at Shiloh Baptist or to anyone that you're speaking to? 
it's it's intermingled because I wrote about this. I wrote a I wrote a I wrote a response to this on Facebook about leprosy, and then um, there 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 are three scriptures in the Bible that deals with this about social distancing. Uh, in the book of uh, Exodus, chapter number I think thirteen, when the death angel uh, came upon Egypt and God told the the Jews, "I want you to put blood above the doorpost." And when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. But there was something that was profound that Moses did. He called the elders. I think this is in verse 20, 21, 22. He called the elders and told them, stay indoors. You will not go out your doors until the morning, until it's safe to go outside because God is going to pass through the city this night. Stay indoors because whether or not you're a child of God, if you go outdoors, you're going to die. So, so Moses called the elders of the people and, and, and listen to what science is saying. Those who are, who are the most susceptible to this particular pandemic or pestilence are the elderly population. Mm. And, and Moses, and it's in scripture, if we just open our eyes and read it, he called the elders and said, you will not go out this night until the morning. And in other words, he was saying, stay, stay indoors until it's safe to go outside. That's the second narrative in the scriptures that I brought. Leviticus chapter 13, Exodus chapter number 12, and then Isaiah chapter 20, verse 26. God tells them, stay indoors. Uh, uh, go into your homes, shut your doors. I'm paraphrasing it. And do not come out until the Lord's anger has passed. And then the next verse, he talks about why this happened. He talked about the blood of the innocent being shed. He talked about uh, people being killed. He talked about the social ills of what brought this on. But before he brought this judgment, he told them, get inside your homes, shut your doors, shut your windows, social distancing. And so the word of God is very clear that there comes a time in our lives that when pestilences are in the land, when when viruses are in the land, when things that are being told us by professionals that line up with scripture, it's in our best interest to listen because God does speak through medical science. Now, here's how I reconcile faith and, and well, scripture and science. I, I look at scripture in terms of faith. I look at science in terms of fact. And in, in, in Shiloh, we got medical professionals that come to church every day, every Sunday. And they listen to my, they, they, they hear my instructions from God's word about how to have a victorious living, to how to take this scripture, apply it to your life, and live a victorious life as a believer in Jesus Christ. They, they hear my instructions, and they leave Shiloh every Sunday to take those instructions and put them to, uh, to, to heart and to put them to practice. So I went to seminary. I, I have a theological training. But we got medical professionals in our congregation that went to school, and they got medical expertise. And they're saying, and their instruction to me is, Pastor, the same way you went to seminary and you're able to not, now this is not what they're saying, but this is what I'm saying. The same way I went to seminary so I can instruct them in the word of God, they went to school to be educated and to be able to instruct me with wisdom. And so when we have people in our congregation and I'm listening to people who are professionals in this and they are expertise, they, they are giving instruction. It is wise for me to listen to what they're saying, measure it, against what God is saying and make a decision. And 
the more I listen to what they're telling us and the more I read scripture, it is becoming more and more obvious that we need to listen to those who are the professionals. Very interesting. And I'd imagine, though, you know, imagine if someone loses a loved one during a time like this, the best way, at least that I know of, to grieve is to do it through a funeral or a wake or to gather with your loved ones and celebrate somebody's life. There have been a few deaths in York recently. Um, a football coach recently passed away who was beloved by the community. But right now, you you just simply can't congregate at a funeral because of, of the COVID-19 pandemic. What would you say to someone who is grieving during a time like this, who can't gather with loved ones to, to um, you know, get some peace of mind? What would you say to someone who's struggling with that right now? Tom, it's, that's a tough that's a tough reality that we're living in. Um, and one of the things they're finding out now, and this just came out, is that a lot of funeral, uh, those who work in the funeral home industry, uh, mortuary science, are finding that this particular virus can live even after the person dies. And so those who are in the uh, mortuary science business, as they are preparing bodies, they're coming in contact with bodies that may have this virus. And now they're exposed to, to the virus. Mm. Long, so not only do you see the first responders, not only do you see the doctors, not only do you see the medics, now you have, and that's before death, now you have those that are dealing with uh, people after they die that's still uh, susceptible to, con to contracting this virus. And so now, because of that, they're, they're, they're putting safeguard measures in place to safeguard themselves. And um, I think in times like this, pastors and church members may have to fill the gap. You know, we may have to be the ones to come in alongside and, 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 and somehow connect with them while they may be there or um, uh, watching that online. Um, I know one of the uh, funeral homes here, because what we've been doing, we've been reaching out to the various funeral homes so that we can know what their policies are as a church. So if, if something, if God forbid something happens, we will be able to be able to uh, to let our membership know and prepare them. And um, many of the funeral homes right now, uh, they're not having services. They'll let you come and view the body and then they'll take you from the viewing directly to the graveside. There, there's no uh, and, and you may have the, the minister may give words of comfort or a brief eulogy uh, at the graveside. But the traditional service that we're used to. Those days for the, for the immediate future are, are gone for right now. And so I think we have to adapt to the times as, as pastors and churches to be able to, to still minister to those who are hurting and yet be sensitive to, to the fact that we're living in a time that is, you know, this is not fantasy. This is real. Yeah. And it's something that we haven't seen before. And we have to adapt to be able to be there for that family but also to safeguard, you know, those who are the professionals that have to go through this with them. What do you see in terms of the biggest needs right now for folks that you interact with in York? I mean, obviously, food is a major concern. We hope that the government issues adequate financial aid to folks to get through these difficult times. But, in, you know, we talked about activism at the very top of our conversation. If there was something you could say to a public official or to someone who had the power to really help people through these times, what would that be? 
I think what the people are looking for really is is hope, uh, Tom. They many people are so frustrated, and I know you've gotten this because you you, you know you've gone uh, grassroots dealing with people on a grassroots level, and they become so frustrated with the polarization of political uh, events and things that should not be politicized being politicized. And unfortunately, in this crisis, in this pestilence that it doesn't care whether you're black, white, rich, poor, uh, you know, Republican, Democrat, independent, libertarian, it doesn't care. It doesn't care of your economic status, doesn't care of your social background. Uh, this, this pestilence is, is taking the lives of everybody, irregardless of, of, of their social background or their pedigree. And, and to make this a political uh, issue when people are dying, and lives are being lost is so um, disheartening. And so one of the one of the one of the things that I'm that I'm seeing as I talk to people is that people they're, they're losing hope. They're they're losing hope uh, in many times in, in many instances. And I'm sure you've seen this. Not only are they losing hope, many times they've lost hope in public servants. They've lost hope in uh, law enforcement. They've lost hope in many instances the church. They've lost hope that things are going to get better. And so when you're living in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a time of hopelessness, whether you have food or not, whether you have shelter or not, whether you have clothes or not, those are tangible things. But those tangible things cannot deal with the intangible aspect of hopelessness. And I think that's what Shiloh is trying to do, to partner with this community that in the midst of a, a pestilence, a pandemic, uh, a plague that's, that's wiping out uh, communities across this world, not just in this country, not to lose hope, that there's always been an, 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 another side of, of a, every pestilence in scripture, there was always another side, the other side. So, so the, uh, the, 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 uh, the plague of 1918 came. Uh, the influenza plague of 1918 came. Uh, 50 million people lost their lives. 500 million people worldwide was affected. But we came out of it. There was another side. Um, the Ebola uh, outbreak, it, it, uh, I think 14 million people lost their lives. But we came out of it. There was another side. And so world history has always told us and shown us that when these things occur, there's always going to be the other side. But we can't lose hope when we're going through. We have to know that we're going to come out of it. And, and that's what we're trying to do, to give people the hope, because that's what they're losing. As Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes. Yes, yes, and I think exactly. we're seeing that now. And, you know, it reminds me of President Roosevelt's famous quote, where he said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Yes. And I think keeping that perspective, being hopeful, being sober, don't get me wrong, being very clear-eyed to the danger, I think, is critically important. But also knowing that if we do this the right way and we listen to healthcare experts and we practice the correct tactics to get through this, then we will. Um, and I think that message of hope is severely lacking in our society today, whether it's through the church or through the government. Um, it's the best medicine to despair and unfortunately, there's not enough of that medicine to go around right now. And so, Pastor, um, I thank you for 
for joining us. Just as a final note, I know you are an author, which I have a tremendous amount of respect for. Your book, Suffering in Silence, uh, is one that you gifted to me a few months ago. Where can folks find that if they want to check it out? Uh, thank you for that. Uh, they can go to my personal, well, they can go to Amazon, go to Amazon, type in uh, Dr. Larry Walthour, type in Suffering in Silence with my name, and it will take you to the uh, Amazon page. And when you go there, there is a, uh, there is a sample reading that they can click on and, uh, and, and read the sample. And then if they want to purchase it, uh, there are two options. There's a hard copy and then there's a PDF download. They can also go to my uh, personal website. Uh, that's www.drltwm. That stands for Dr. Larry T. Walthour Ministries, drltwm.org. Um, and go to the bookstore. And uh, when they go to the bookstore, it'll come up and they can do a PDF download there or they can order a hard copy as well. Uh, they can also go to my Facebook page, uh, Dr. Larry T. Walthour Ministries. Uh, click the blue button there. I think it's shop now and they can order it uh, through a uh, default site uh, through Facebook. It will take them to how to order it on my personal um, um, uh, website. Or they can also go to gmap1.com, go to the bookstore and they can uh, look through the books, come to so Suffering in Silence there and download it to their mobile device or order a hard copy as well. Man, I wish I had you as my publisher when I put my book out. I gotta <laughs> put it out to, through some new, <laughs> some new mediums. I'm gonna send, I'm gonna send you all the links. I'm gonna send you all the links, Doc. <laughs> That's a deal. Well, Pastor Walter, it's it's always a privilege, my friend. It's great talking to you. Thank you so much, Tom, and uh, keep in touch.